No doubt you saw dissident voices silenced or belittled in 2020, and that continued into 2021. They were labeled conspiracy theorists or some such thing. We've seen that some of these ideas were right all along. I'm not suggesting they were right because they were contrary. I'm suggesting they are vital because they are contrary. Imagine the trouble Copernicus had daring to suggest the sun was the center of the solar system. As my guest discusses, contrary thinking, here called free thought, has been a vital part of human thinking since at least biblical times, maybe even earlier. And thinking against the conventional, allowable opinion is as vital now as it was then. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 144. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Libertarian, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. For this summer's grilling season, go spicy with the Heat Seeker Spice Kit from Savory Spice. Each kit includes five different jars of spice mix, including a ghost pepper salt and a Jamaican jerk seasoning, and also a bottle of smoked jalapeno sauce. Use my affiliate link culinarylibertarian.com slash heat to order and get hot this summer. Michael Rechtenwald returns to the show. Michael has been on to talk about cultural Marxism, the Great Reset, and vaccine passports. Today, Michael is discussing free thought. There is a rich and interesting history going back to biblical times, which he mentions, but the focus of the talk is a look at more recent aspects. This is also a way to introduce the idea since he's developing a course on free thought for Liberty Classroom. Now, as we get into this, I did have a plan for this talk, which I mentioned, and, well, it just didn't work out because it turns out just you can't corral it. So, as Vonnegut would say, so it goes. Hello, Michael. Welcome back to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, We're going to speak today about a, maybe I'm tipping the hat too soon, uh, about a course you're working on, another course for the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom um, about about free thought, now it was called. Uh, You already have a course there, which we talked about on cultural Marxism. Um, So... When the people hear, oh, of course I'm free thought. Yeah, I like that. And then if they pause for more, they're going to say, wait a minute. What is that? Because that was my initial response. Like, oh, this is a great idea, but what is it? So let's talk about free thought. But I want to see if we can sort of have three sections here. Let's talk about what it is. Yeah. Let's talk about what it isn't. And then let's have a little bit of criticism because I, I think I have some some observations about 
some of my understandings of it, and it seems like there's room to be to be scholarly critical of it, not like, well, I don't like it. Well, so no, there's a lot to so, say that uh, there's a lot of issues with it, actually. Well, then that sounds good because I like things with lots of issues. They see get those brain cells working. All right. So first of all, what is free thought? Well, it's um, the the term first came into usage in uh, in the late seventeenth century, uh, and it it meant basically uh, someone uh, free thought was a thinking that was basically challenging. Uh, conventional religious ideas or religious beliefs. And so it, it was associated with deism and pantheism and atheism and uh, other sort of heterodox thought with reference to uh, religious belief. So that's really what it started out as. Um, and uh, it became associated with uh, basically any kind of un uh, unorthodox thinking with reference to conventional ideas. Uh, so, you know, its birthplace is in relation to religion, and that's really interesting. And uh, also one of the thorny issues that I deal with in, in this class and that I'd like to talk about. Uh, here's a, a definition given in 1899 in a short history of free thought by John M. Robertson who was himself a partisan and historian of free thought, he defined the constellation of ideas associated with free thought and free thinking as, quote, a conscious reaction against some phase or phases of conventional or traditional doctrine and religion. On the one hand, a claim to think freely in the sense of not, not of disregard for logic, but of special loyalty to it, on the problems to which the past course of things has given a great intellectual and practical importance. On the other hand, the actual practice of such thinking. <laughs> this is a 19th, you know, 19th century writer, so it's uh, you know very. It's a very uh, convoluted definition. Basically, uh, free thinking is 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 thinking that is in reaction to conventional or traditional doctrine and religion originally. And that's true that um, I traced the history back. The very first usage of the term is with reference to religious ideas. And so it is first and foremost, uh, or that is it, its birth was in relation to religious ideas and belief. I guess I'm going to violate my own sectioning because it sounds so we have a, we have a few things we need to define first can you define the word heterodox what does that yeah mean? heterodox is opposed to orthodoxy so it is beliefs uh and thinking that is not in line with orth orthodox beliefs and that gets okay. us to the crux of the matter because i think that's a more important issue um orthodoxy i think can be other than religious in nature and so i think that the, that the whole cast of free thought the whole notion of it has to be freed from its strict opposition to religious ideas and that's what i'm attempting to do in the course it's not easy because all the histories of free thought whether contemporary or 
less, you know, uh, less contemporary, uh, are all, all of these histories, and there aren't that many because it's a very nebulous idea. All of these histories are defining free thinking in connection with religion. And what happens is uh, it gets associated with atheism eventually, such that free thinking is associated with atheism only or any tendency towards atheism. And I find that problematic because, uh, for example, look at Solzhenitsyn in the Soviet Union. Uh, certainly we would consider him a free thinker because he was opposing the orthodoxy of the time. And that, that happened to be communism. And so to define free thought only with reference to religion is to delimit it in a very uh, unhistorical way. Uh, it is not strictly uh, any kind of rebellion against religion. Uh, it can't be thought that way in order to take into consideration many free thinkers who haven't actually been religious. So thank you for defining heterodox. So that's the opposite of orthodox. Yeah. It seems that... Hetero, hetero could... itself means many uh, or other. So it's anything other than orthodox. Orthodox, of course, is what is in line with the dominant and received beliefs and opinions. Uh, so anything... Well, you sort of set up, and I'll use the, <laughs> your, you like tennis, you sort of set up a perfect lob for me, which in 2020, if we extend the concept of religion and to a, a conventional mm -hmm. mass way of thinking, I'm, I'm going to be kind, then we certainly have in 2020 seen a religion develop in in the world's society over response to COVID policies. Yes. So there is 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 free thought a way of life, or can a person exhibit free thought tendencies? And so my specific example, far removed from time, would be Galileo, who clearly was opposed to the both conventional thinking of the time and the religious thinking of the time to dare suggest something that was not approved. Right. Yeah. I mean, you would think so, that Galileo is definitely a free thinker and he comes up in this history. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So would, would anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers or anybody going against the conventional wisdom of COVID be considered a free thinker or exhibiting tendencies of free thought? In my estimation, Is... yes. Uh, because while there's been this contemporary or this, this association historically of free thought with religious, uh, with religious heterodoxy, it really, the notion of free thought can be abstracted from this historical and situational contingency of being to religion and apply as something uh, of value in its own right with reference to any dominant uh, creed or any dominant narrative for that matter to put it in contemporary terms 
It's, it's any thought or thinking that dares to contradict convention. Okay, so it doesn't require one to subscribe to a particular set of beliefs. Right. Like one would say, I'm a Democrat, and by and to demonstrate my, my allegiance to this particular group, I think these thoughts, and they behave this way, and I prefer these policies over that policies. One can be... One could be Republican or Democrat or nothing or libertarian and exhibit free thought tendencies as long as it is a is challenging the perceived mainstream thought of the time. Yes. Now, but let me say this, that nevertheless, even recently and, you know, relatively recently, you know, like Susan Jacoby wrote a, a book called Free Thinkers. Uh, um, and the subtitle of it is American Secularism. So you, there is this real association with free thought with reference to uh, religion, and that's a very difficult tie to break without coming into some contradiction with, like I said, almost all of the histories, if not all of the histories of free thought and the very notion of free thinking which keeps uh, playing against religion. And so it gets associated with, uh, free thought gets associated with such notions as secularism. Uh, it gets tied in with uh, atheism. It also, because atheism has been inextricably considered as associated with reason, it's, it tries to establish itself as the only reasonable position uh, because religious belief has been associated, and likewise, religious belief gets associated with irrationality. So free thought also has this element that it's associated with religion, which is, a, you know, which it's associated with, you know, sort of heterodoxy with reference to religion. And then uh, it gets associated with atheism, and atheism gets associated with reason, so anything that's not reasonable is, is considered, uh, or uh, you know, irrational. Any anything that's religious rather gets considered irrational. And so this this is this is the history is just riven with this this series of associations. But after the 20th century, the strict association of free thought with atheism and reason with atheism must be, re it really has to be rethought. And that's what I'm working on. This why this course is so difficult because I'm rethinking and it's hard to do when all the histories that you're looking at cast it in this way. Um, certainly free thinking can be and has been anything, has been other than atheist. And atheism has no exclusive claim on rationality. Um, this is some of the problems that are that plague the history of free thought, or I should say, it's riddled with these problems, I should say, and this tight coupling of free thought then is uh, coupled with secularism, uh, which is a whole other story. And I, could, I, I know that history very well, uh, because that was my actual field of study in, uh, as an academic, an academic scholar. Is this uh, is the emergence of secularism from the free thought movement in the in the nineteenth century in in Great Britain? But yes, um, I think 
that you could say free thought is also opposed to something like uh, the party line when it comes to politics. And also it could be associated with, you know, for example, in our contemporary moment, not only uh, alternate narratives to the COVID narrative, but also to the woke movement. Right. Well, I think we could probably find anything. Yes. Like, so, so, but so that more, it's more than religious heterodoxy or anti-religion. It, you, free thought survives as a model of thinking that, and an intellectual disposition that transcends its religious, political, and social roots and becomes associated, by the way, with libertarianism, including free market economics. That happens uh, in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries uh, because uh, free thought becomes associated with the free market as well. Let's go back a minute to the orthodoxy versus heterodoxy. I, and I'm, I'm not sure that I'm going to get this part right, but to me, there's a, <laughs> it sounds reasonable that this, this is a pretty big clash. This is a, this is a, this is a major conflict. And uh, some of the things that I was listening, I don't remember the two people, I listened to these two people give a fairly long talk about free thought. And one of the first things they mentioned, they made, they made it plain almost immediately that it is, uh, as you said, a, a way of thinking outside of organized religion. Right. And... And so a few things funny happened, but they brought up a a philosophy, for lack of a better term, called humanism. Yeah, or humanist. Right. And now I years ago I had like like for five minutes did some reading on them, and it was interesting. But it was interesting partly because it was a new idea, and so. New tends to be interesting until it comes. It became boring quickly. Uh-huh. Um, but I was also in, I had a, a, who knows. It may be fantastic. I didn't really pursue it. Um, is just because it's interesting to me to know this. Is humanism part of the afterbirth of this fight between orthodoxy and heterodoxy, or is it something completely different? Well. Um, humanism arises uh, within the church, actually, with Erasmus in particular. And uh, this is the notion that, you know, the, the shorthand definition is man is the measure of all things. This, of course, goes back to Greece, ancient Greece, but it, there, become, there, there derives a humanism within uh, Catholicism, for example, with Erasmus. And it is placing uh, new importance on human flourishing per se, which, uh, which is to say that rather than having a disposition with reference to pleasing God or uh, being uh, in a cosmic uh, situation in which humans are measured in effect by God in terms of their worth morally and otherwise, Humanism says we can we can take the human uh, development and human worth outside of that context and to measure it against you know 
strictly human values, like in terms of human flourishing and the measure of all things being humans themselves with reference to themselves. So yeah, humanism is a free thought, is a development of free thinking. Uh, and uh, it's a particular development uh, which is uh, to place central importance on the human uh, as the locus of value and the locus of uh, control, uh, really. Uh, so now that that becomes uh, one strain, really, of free thinking and. It's not all. It's not all necessarily humanist by any stretch. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and it, it certainly sounds like there's lots of room for personal interpretation of what the. It sounds like it's also very hard to get away from the concept of of an ideal. But it's it, if if your focus is human potential, that's mm-hmm. kind of abstract. I mean, maybe religious abstract anyway, but may I, I have pretty limited knowledge on a couple of religions, and but in in both cases of Judaism and Christianity, there is there is this abstract entity that is the thing we 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 try to emulate, mm-hmm. and I'm. I'm butchering this, and so I, I know I'm making some losers mad. That's not what it is. I know that. Um, so either you're trying to emulate Christ, or you're trying to live up to the standard God set in the Torah. Mm-hmm. Where so I, I think one of the criticisms for a humanist is who's your model, right? Which which right? There's I mean, the un- you know the unhinging of morality from any sort of uh any sort of warrant there and it places the human morality strictly in terms of uh human value but then where does that come from that's the big question uh it's a vexing one and uh the uh you know there this has been the critique of uh, atheism altogether uh, that without some sort of uh, moral standard given by some uh, entity that's ent- that's somehow exterior to uh, humans, then how do they derive human value and morality and so forth? This was something worked on by the earliest free thinkers, especially with the uh, with the emergence of what's called secularism which was actually coined in 1851, the term secularism by a free thinker named George Holyoke. Was my main, he was my main man of uh, scholarly interest as an academic. Uh, he, he developed secularism in the 19th century, and this was a movement that said that moral, the morality was based on doing good with reference to humans in this in, thi- in this in this life and not with reference to any other uh, so there there becomes this new 
emphasis on uh, moral value with reference to doing good works and good, you know, good outcomes. We would try to favor good outcomes on earth as opposed to with reference to some teleology uh, in heaven. I, I mentioned I was watching a YouTube video and it's interesting. I don't know why I didn't remember because it I made me smile at the time that it's two people from the Pittsburgh free thought community. <laughs> like, wait a minute, Michael knows about Pittsburgh. Yeah. Now I'm trying to find out who these people are and it's not telling me anything here. Um, Most likely they're going to be people that they're like, uh, they're probably atheists. Uh, they might even be Unitarian. Oh, here they are. Yeah. Robin Zucker and John Hooper. What are their names again? Robin Zucker. She's yeah, I've heard of her. Yeah, Unitarian uh, minister, mm -hmm. and John is a retired research scientist. And a quote from the YouTube blurb: "Seeks to gain an understanding of the world without supernatural assumptions." Right. Right. That was the, that was what secularism tried to do. It said that it would not. Uh, as opposed to atheism, actually, secularism developed not a, in contradiction, not in contradistinction to atheism as uh, I'm sorry, religion or religious belief as 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 much as it it grew out of a, a contradistinction with atheism, and that is, it said we don't care about we put the question of deity out of the picture. Uh, it isn't. It is. It, it it became what's later what was later called agnostic with reference to that, and only sought to uh, to place value on um, what was uh, non theological and non metaphysical uh, and non supernatural. Yeah, but as to say, it, it didn't exclude believers. It didn't exclude believers. It didn't exclude atheists it it attempted to transcend both of them uh, i've written about this at length in um, my book 19th century british secularism science religion and literature and in many essays about uh, the free thought movement and the and secularism in particular um, secularism is distinct now from this is worldview secularism as opposed to political secularism which is a whole is another matter entirely worldview secularism as opposed to political secularism which is uh political secularism is we can talk about that too but well let's you know we should probably go back to free thought well yeah but so the the two people in this video they as they're having their conversation and they're sort of it's clear that they've had a conversation somewhere else in private. So they're talking about what they said to each other. And then they're expanding on these ideas. There, there, there comes across a sense of rigidity mm -hmm. in free thought as if, so it's, it becomes kind of interesting. It's almost ironic that the name free thought has boundaries. They get, so, they get very well, dogmatic, as in the case of the new atheists like Dawkins and uh, 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 what are the rest of them? Uh, well, Hitchens was one, and uh, uh, what's the other two? Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> um, Den Denning, and uh, there's one other whose name escapes me right now. But uh, um, 
they become very dogmatic and they suggest that you can't be either rational um, or you can't be, uh, you know, basically you're an idiot if you believe in, in, in anything religious. And uh, they become very dogmatic as uh, atheists as such. Uh, I'm going to open a passage in a minute and read something about the history of secularism, if I can. Okay. Uh, since this is a long hour we have here, uh, let me get to uh, my book here. It's 19th century British secularism again. And uh, I just want to give you an idea of while well, secularism, which was birthed out of the 19th century free thought movement, uh, what it held. Um, let me see here. I should have had this open, but uh, didn't know everywhere we were going to go here. It appears necessary to note that with the term secular or sec and secularism, Holyoke did not signify the absence or negation of religion, but rather indicated a substantive category in its own right. Holyoke imagined and fostered a the coexistence of secular and religious elements subsisting under a common umbrella known as secularism. For Holyoke, the secular and religious were figured as complementary and co-constituting aspects of what we might now call an overarching secularity, but which Holyoke called secularism. Uh, basically, hold on a second, I'm going to go further. Uh, there was a point in which he was challenged with this view that secularism was not necessarily atheist, okay? And he argued that secularism was neither atheist nor theist, that instead it let that question out of the picture. And so it was very, it was very, very, uh, should say latitudinarian. It was very, um, flexible with reference to belief, but that was then rejected by the secularist movement, uh, in particular with a guy named Bradlaugh, Charles Bradlaugh, who took secularism from Holyoke and turned it back into an atheist uh, dogmatism. And that's where most people's views of uh, secularism and free thought come from. They come from the Bradlaugh camp. Uh, which was a much more hardcore atheist camp. Um, but there was a huge argument throughout the second half of the 19th century about this definition of secularism, which rose out of free thought. Um, he, you know, Holyoke maintained that, you know, uh, I'll try to give you a quote from him. He's, Holyoke said about secularism and secular principles, he said, you set up, you set up secular principles for their own value. Many secular, many peer persons are secularists who can see religion even in this. The provision is not to set up a thing devoid of all religion, but to set up a thing distinct in itself. And you have no more right to say that it is set up apart from religion than the clergyman has a right to say when you set up secular knowledge apart from his creed that you intend thereby to set up, set it up devoid of religion or public piety. 
we see here by secularism, Holyoke meant a substantive doctrine uh, with its own values, not the mere absence or negation of religion or religious belief. For this reason, it could logically or otherwise stand parallel to or above religious systems. Moreover, he was even willing to allow secularism to be construed as a religion in its own right. This was a more acceptable op option than including atheism as a necessary element of secularism. So the same can be said of free thought, because this was the way the free thought movement had developed into secularism. And then it distinguished itself from atheism per se, and suggested that you were trying to set up a whole system of thinking and belief or behavior that doesn't take into consideration, that doesn't have to have a position with reference to belief in, or theism or atheism either. It's, a, it's an attitude of mind that is not necessarily negative with reference to belief. And this was, what, this was how it developed, but then it got, as I said, co-opted effectively by the Bradlaugh camp who, who then drove it back into the atheist uh, free thought movement from which it derived and then made it coupled with atheism. And then, you know, because Bradlaugh said that you couldn't have, that secularism was effectively atheist. And in a sense, that means free thought was atheist as well. So yeah, whenever you run into contemporary free thinkers, as they, if they call themselves that, for the most part, they're going to be people that are saying, we're atheists, um, we don't value the supernatural, we don't place any value in belief. In fact, we're anti-belief in anything supernatural. And this is a necessary uh, this is a necessary precept that you must adopt in order to be a free thinker. I think that's ludicrous because th there's a whole history here that they don't know anything about. I spent my whole academic career trying to get this across and I succeeded. Um, it became known in academic circles that Holyoke's version of secularism was not atheist and it was not theist. It, it attempted to set up a, a morality and a kind of movement uh, for the improvement of conditions in this life, which was agnostic with reference to belief. And in fact, when agnosticism was coined by uh, Huxley, the term in 1869, Holyoke adopted it as well as and said, basically, this is what I've been saying. And he had been for 20 years. Uh, and of course, Huxley got all the credit for the idea, although I think he stole it from Holyoke and never acknowledged him. You mentioned strains of free thought. Mm -hmm. I, I, that surprises me, but maybe it shouldn't. So you've already identified one, the contemporary free thinker. What, it's, it's hard not to think of this in the broad sense of the term, as a religion. It yeah, seems to be a, 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 a group identification by thought process as opposed to deed. I don't know what the difference is. It seems the same. That's true. Uh, it, it, if it starts to have a, 
uh, a creed. And that creed has a set of beliefs, you know, which a creed is basically, that's the definition of a creed. Then it's effectively religious in its own right. And um, this is one of the things, and it's it can be very dogmatic as well, as in the new atheists, who are, are, are you know I've never liked, I don't like their way of their way of their dogmatism, and their hard what we call hard atheism as a, as it's put in the academy. But for example, if you were to go into Clubhouse, the new social networking site you'll see all these rooms devoted to free thought and they're not associating themselves strictly with atheism. They're talking about free thinking with reference to other things, in particular, dominant ideology um, and wokeness and social justice and, and so on and so forth. So it's escaped this narrow casting that has been given to it historically uh, and it has gotten to, uh, it's coming to be redefined in terms of, uh, op, you know, incredulity or at least uh, questioning of dominant beliefs, whether they are religious, but mostly whether they are kind of social and political. Uh, that's really becoming the, the meaning for people in the contemporary moment. Free thought is not necessarily any longer associated with uh, religious uh, incredulity and, uh, you know, atheism. You think that maybe not these exact people, but there is a co-opting of the term because it sounds cool. <laughs> like a co-opting. You think? So it's like, I don't, do you I don't think, think that it's they're co-opting. Just... I think it's a natural development. Not natural, but a, 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 there, there were the seeds were already there for free thought to develop into something other than strictly opposition to belief or, you know, opposition to religious orthodoxy. It, it, it has the seeds of that because basically, look, in our era, religion is not the dominant creed. Okay, so what it, what is dominant in our in our period? Actually, secularism is dominant. So in a way, they're more free thinking if you are actually uh, challenging secularism, which which is funny because this is where this is how free thought grew out of uh, secularism grew out of free thought. Yet you're actually more of a free thinker to challenge secularism now than you are to challenge religion because secularism is the dominant creed uh, in our era. Now, some would argue not in the United States, but I don't think that's true. Even in the United States, if you consider the cultural institutions, if you consider, you know, the main, you know, academia, for example, if you consider most of the cultural institutions and the uh, major propagators of belief and ideology, and then you'd have to say that, in fact, secular ideals and ideas are dominant in our society. So whatever is dominant, it becomes free thought to question. I, I can't remember her name, and I'm disappointed about that. But uh, maybe this is it. Yeah. Part of, maybe this isn't Correct, but as far as my thought process goes, there's 
always the thing, Puritanism, free thought, and then the almost necessary destruction of the thing by its own self. Yeah. So the Puritans came here and Anne Hutchinson had some different ideas. Well, she's got to get. So it, it seems that there is this problem here. So we have, we have these different strains. It is free thought in some way suffocating under its own weight? No, I don't think so. Um, I think the, the narrow definition of it is wrong based on its historical development since its inception. So some people cling to the narrow definition based on its inception and the associations that it has uh, collected over time. And they, therefore, they are suffocating it, yes, but it's escaped their suffocation and it's become something else. Uh, and that's good, I think. So we could turn some phrases here and, and say that those clinging to the original are a kind of orthodox yes we thought they're the orthodox <laughs> yes they're they're the orthodox at this juncture here's something that uh, harriet martineau who was a very prominent uh writer in the 19th century in britain wrote about secularism for example she said the adoption of the term secularism is justified by its including a large number of persons who are not atheists and uniting them for action which has secularism for its object and not atheism. If by the adoption of a new term, a vast amount of impediment from prejudices got rid of, the use of the term secularism is found advantageous. Um, so already, you know, there was this escaping uh, from its, you know, tight coupling, uh, free thought from its tight coupling with anti-religion and, and, you know, atheism and anti-theism and an expansion to include persons who were not necessarily atheists, but who had secularism as their object. And what that means is the value of, uh, putting value on things for their own sake for in this world as opposed to the next uh, and for human flourishing on the uh, in this life as such and in the temporal rather than the uh, eternal uh, or the uh, uh, can, there's a lot of oppositions you can draw the temporal versus the internal uh, this life versus the next etc they they just said look leave the matter the same happened in science by the way in the 19th century with the phrase uh scientific naturalism which became the main the main organizing uh constellation of uh, uh the scientific epistemological uh constellation that dominated by the third quarter of the 19th century it said it was a methodological materialism that said we don't even ask the question of whether there's uh, any divine or uh, supernatural agency in the world. What we're saying is we'll confine ourselves to those matters which are not, and that we'll study thus those matters apart from that. And we, we're not making any metaphysical claims. We're merely 
to, uh, we're merely employing a methodological materialism, if you will, a methodological naturalism, and excluding factors that aren't that aren't natural or metaphys or that are not uh, supernatural and metaphysical from our consideration without making any claims with reference to them, whether whether to negate or to affirm. Uh, that's that was the dominant epistemology. That that idea came straight out of agnosticism and was also mostly furthered by uh, by you know uh, Huxley. And this Huxley I'm talking about is not Aldous Huxley or Julian Huxley. I'm talking about uh, Thomas Henry Huxley. He was the bulldog, Darwin's bulldog, as they called him, uh, who basically uh, was the main propagandist for Darwinism in the third quarter of the 19th century. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Let me make just a broad suggestion that... On some level, we who follow religion accept that on some level that's going to affect our behavior. Yes. Now, lots of people will reject that, and that's fine. I'm going for a point. With the rejection of religion and supernatural, well, just keep it religion. With the free thought rejection of religion, did they also then expect this new way of thinking to impact behavior or yes yes uh, they they expected people to then reorient themselves to temporal matters material matters strictly um now that's true for secularism as well they expected people to orient themselves with reference to material matters rather than spiritual strictly but they didn't exclude it they didn't exclude the religious or the spiritual or the supernatural. They just said, we're not worried about that. We don't make any claim with reference to it. That then was picked up, that then was transmuted again into this idea that, no, no, to be a secularist, you must be an atheist. And to be a free thinker, therefore, you must be an atheist. And that that became the hardcore atheism that came out of the 19th century and into the 20th and into our own era such that we still have this tight coupling of the idea of free thought with atheism and free thought as opposed to religious thinking and and so on but it's it's really this is i'm trying to rewrite the history of free thought actually in this course and it may turn into something else it may turn into a book because this is a big undertaking i might as well make a book out of it uh, by the virtue of the fact that I'm, I'm basically trying to rewrite the history of free thought from the contemporary standpoint by showing that it isn't free thinking to be uh, completely in line with the dominant 
viewpoint, that is by, by definition, that is orthodoxy, as you said. So let me say, for myself and maybe the listeners, like, what did you guys just say? <laughs> from, from its original thought, I wanted to say this is, it sounds funny to use the word thought about free thought, from its original idea of, of accepting a world outside of the spiritual, but not excluding the spiritual. Yes. It has gone through transformations mm-hmm. where the excluded became rejected. Right. And the preferred became dominant. Right. So, so what that means is, as free thought grew from generation to generation, it excluded entirely God yes. completely yes. And, and supernatural entirely and focused exclusively on the human. The human and the material and the uh, non-metaphysical, uh, the temporal and uh, the um, the um, yeah, just that. That's it. For listeners who are thinking as they're hearing this, it's either you catalyst pigs or going back a few years to this kind of love in, feel good, drop in, tune out kind of Timothy Leary 1960s things where it's the focus of now is now. What's happening if I miss now? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, um, well, not exactly. I mean, th- there's, there's also this idea of there's a progress narrative that runs through a lot of it. Uh, there's, if you read these histories of free thought, they, they see progress as anything that tends toward atheism. So, that's progress for them. So um, there is not just this moment, but there's the next moment, but there's no otherworldly moments that matter that or, or that exist, according to them. That there, there is no reference to the, uh, to the eternal, for example. And, and that's really uh, how secular came to be defined. And, and as I said, when I say secular, I, I mean that's how free thought became developed yes and it's gotten hardened even further as time has gone on um so that you know and and that belief is considered you know something that is opposed to well-being in this in the in this moment or in this in this life whereas you know a religious person would saying that's absolutely not true there's nothing about religion that's about for example christianity that says it's not concerned with your well-being in this life. In fact, it would say your well-being is dependent upon an ordered belief in uh, in the in, in the divine. And without the divine, you're going to have nothing but a, a disordered life here. And therefore, the orientation uh, towards God does not undermine the human as such. That's that's the argument you'll hear from religionists as they were called uh who who won't 
who, who would say that, look, there's no necessary connection between improvement and atheism. And that, that I can't help but agree with. There is no necessary connection between a development towards atheism and improvement in this life. That's absurd. Now, I, the, this next question is going to be, it can be another book or a whole other episode. And I, I don't mean to set you up only to cut you off, but we've, we've gotten this far. And I just have to wonder, how does... Hmm. The question as soon as they do, do free thinkers account for morality? Yes. Um, they have different, there's various systems. One of them was utilitarianism. Uh, that is whatever produces the greatest pleasure or the greatest good for the greatest number is, is what is moral. And this, they de- they derived from Jeremy Bentham, um, and that, that's basically the main uh, utilitarianism is the main uh, philosophical and ethical underpinning of a purely, you know, atheist pre uh, secularist viewpoint. Um, the problem with that is that utilitarianism is a precept for uh, sacrificing individuals in many in many cases, because what if it is for the greater good? What if at large there are more people benefit from, say, uh, you know, killing off a few hundred thousand people? You know, I mean, eugenics certainly can be seen as utilitarian in some sense. Who's to say why should these people be sacrificed? And oh, it's for the greater good. Uh, well, the greater good is uh, certainly a problem because in the when the greater good is posited as the ultimate value, then the individual value is oftentimes cast aside. And in fact, I think utilitarianism is a recipe for totalitarianism. I've argued this in many places. Well, I was going to call you on that because you even just a few days ago um, posted, I think, both on Facebook and on Twitter that for, when you hear someone say, and probably a politician, for the greater good, you are listening to a totalitarian speak. Yes, that's right. Now, that's not verbatim, but that's the, that was the spirit of the message. That and, is pretty close. I think I said, to be precise, not that that matters. I said, when you, when you hear the term, the greater good, you're in the grip of totalitarianism. Yeah. Is is that shift from utilitarianism to totalitarianism something that is acceptable in the free think community? I don't know, but I don't think they've thought it through this far. Um, it seems a failing. Yes, it's a definite failing. Uh, they haven't thought it through to this point. I think utilitarian ethics can be uh, can be an apologetics for sacrificing certain individuals and even groups uh, and their rights, in fact. So to me, you know, it can be very anti-libertarian because when the greater good is put as the ultimate value, then individual rights are then considered unimportant and, and disposable. That's a serious problem with utilitarian ethics, and that's why it tends towards totalitarianism. And... You can see this at play, you know, you brought up 
we talked about the great reset in here and many say you know that it's got a eugenics component now i'm not going there for sure and but eugenics is a good example of a, a utilitarianism become totalitarian uh, because if you say that we're better off the greater good is better off if we get rid of you know certain undesirables and those that are less fit to be here then that's for the greater good in the long run so um we can we must get rid of them and or prevent them from reproducing and so on and so forth already you can see the abrogation of rights follows immediately the right to live the right to reproduce etc well this was not what i expected to find out about free thought <laughs> <laughs> well it's very curious right i mean the tight coupling and the the necessary like you said there has to be some system of morality and when you dispense with anything deontological like this um, you're going to have the utilitarian and when you do that or a consequentialist morality when you which utilitarianism is it's a consequentialism when you dispense with anything but a consequentialist morality it's a very very slippery slope i think do you have a framework yet for the course? Do you sort of know how the, how the uh, do you know yet how long it's going to be? Uh, it's have long. Sort of a, uh... I mean, it's, it's covering like 4,000 years of history, starting from. So this is. Yeah. So you could have. 30 half hour episodes? Uh, 30 hour episodes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that might be one of his biggest ones yet because I've got I've been through some of them. Some of them are long, but that's... That could be why he's paying me more. <laughs> it's still onerous given all that. I mean, it's a very, very onerous thing because I'm starting back in, uh, ancient, in ancient India and Persia and... Uh, the ancient Jewish, you know, ancient Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Hebrews, and uh, you know, it starts from uh, the beginning of religion, in effect, as far as we can go back, and then develops from there. Uh, so it's enormous. It's enormous scope, but. Say, that being said, the, those the ancient and the pre-modern are effect. Uh, the ancient and the pre-modern are effectively a prelude to uh, the nineteenth, twentieth, and twentieth centuries in the course. So there's not. It doesn't spend forever there. Right. And the point is to get to nineteenth century when free thought develops into movements, a free thought movement that reaches the masses actually. Uh, becomes plebeian, if you will. It starts to reach the ordinary day laborer and things like that. And they, they start forming societies, uh, free thought societies in the 19th century in England and the United States. Um, so that's where it spends most of its time and then gets into the 20th century and then our moment, which is really curious because now I think free thought is associated with religion more than it is with uh with anything else because it is 
it's beleaguered. The beleaguered belief is actually religiosity. And similarly, uh, you gotta, I mean, you can't look at the 20th century with, and connect free thinking strictly with atheism. Look at the Soviet Union. It was officially an atheist state. And yet to be a free thinker was to be someone who opposed the system. To oppose the system, you, you, you could be religious, you could be uh, unorthodox politically. There was many ways to get gulagged and, or, or shot, uh, you know, or otherwise burned alive. Uh, they did all this. So where do you place free thought in that context? I, I place it outside of the dominant political party line. Uh, and um, so Solzhenitsyn, as I said, would be a certain free thinker without question, in my opinion, although he was a deeply religious man. It, it seems almost that as a voice against orthodoxy, becoming a kind of orthodoxy of its own, it has failed itself. Yeah, there's a... It becomes its own orthodoxy and then hardens into a dogma. And then it belies its own roots. And as such, it also sort of negates free thought, interestingly enough. That's, that, so, that follows, yes. So in the course is, so part of the course clearly is a history. Right. Is... Is part of the course to smash it or just present it and let the listener reach his own conclusion? Or is it a I'm not critique? trying to smash free thought because I think we need it more than ever. But we okay. need to recast it and, uh, and understand what it means at our time. And it means something different than it meant when religion was the dominant, was the dominant creed when religiosity was oppressive at some times for people. It is, it is no longer oppressive in that sense, uh, in the sense that it was either you believe or you could be deemed a heretic and burned at the stake. Certainly that's not good. The Inquisition is not a good thing, but we're now under different types of Inquisitions. And I've read a book that traces the, Inqu uh, that traces the uh, the Soviet and Chinese uh, totalitarianism directly out of the, you know, inquisitional type thinking. Uh, so we, we, we must, we must recast free thought, but we must retain it because without it, there's no recourse, but to be uh, utterly uh, trammeled by the dominant, orthodox views, which can be very negative and can be associated with atheism, in fact, as in the Soviet Union and China, they become totalitarian. So free thought has to be greater than its birthplace. It has, it has to be greater than its, uh, than its birthright. Uh, it has to be retained and we must value free thought uh, without letting it become a form of oppressive ideology in its own right. Right. Now I'm going to bastardize an economic phrase for, and the, the terms are high time preference and low time preference. And 
yeah. uh, in, in, the, in the aspect of the pious or even quasi-pious who go to church and, and attempt some, some religious life, that's engaging in a long, in a long low-time preference. You don't expect reward necessarily right now, maybe even not next week, but in the course of being a pious person, you're sort of, you're pretty certain there's something in it for you. But that's well, not there's the something in it for the world too. Right. But yes, go ahead. The, the high time preference is like, I just, I want my stuff right now. And in since, well, at least in America, I can't speak about anywhere else. There, politicians, politics, pseudoscientists, quasi experts are now deified. That is the new religion in America. It's <laughs> and where the the pious doesn't necessarily get respond doesn't get his response positive or negative immediately in in today's world of political deification you say the wrong thing and brother you're gone you just disappeared and yes. and so it's Facebook not science itself it's a certain narrative supposedly derived from science yeah right but there's the the swiftness of retribution when you sin against God versus sin against Zuckerberg. <laughs> that isn't the same thing. Yes, and boy, talk about behavior modification. There's a so it's if free thinking, in the sense that we are going to we I don't know who he is that thinkers are going to dare to think thoughts unapproved thoughts then brother we need a lot more of that because even if the even if this discord among the disparate thoughts the fact that they're all against the main thing seems like a value to society yes this is what john stuart mill said in on liberty um it is more important to voice unpopular opinions than popular ones because there's no way to find out the truth otherwise. And they also help us understand what we really believe. Uh, I don't have the direct quote here, but it's, it's, there's a very poignant way that John Stuart Mill put it, that it's almost, it's more important to have voice the heterodox than it is to voice the orthodox. And that goes for any kind of creed. So unpopular opinion must be kept alive and can't suffer from what he called social tyranny. Now in his day, social tyranny was mostly religious, he thought, but it can't, he didn't put it in those terms. That's why On Liberty is such a great book because he doesn't cast it in any narrow terms. He puts this rather generally and as such, he leaves it open to the, for the future to, to interpret in its own in the, in the context in which the matter arises, whether in fact you can have uh, unorthodox views that are different in in different eras. You know, you have. Did you come up with this idea? Because this sounds like one massive big bite. 
I did come up with this idea, and I'm always biting off too much, as you know. Well, yes, that would, you know, true to yourself. That's exactly, it's exactly the I case. I put this huge onerous burden, uh, this huge burden on myself to create this course that's trying to speak to our contemporary moment, but, but also that's trying to be true to the history at the same time. So that's a difficult road to tread. Um, trying to rescue free thought from itself almost this is probably in i mean it's, it's hard to answer but do you have a time frame um i'm supposed to be done by now oh my but you can see why i'm not yes and i hope tom wood listens to this because he'll understand <laughs> why i'm not done uh yeah it's probably going to be sometime in the summer here to be to be a real frank okay well, I guess that's soon. I don't know how far you're along, so it's hard for me to gauge. But uh, I can I can at least appreciate the magnitude of the scope. And uh, having read some of your work, I know you don't leave you don't leave much undone. Well, I try not to. Um, I try to be thorough and uh, to grapple with all the issues if I can. And also, I I just like to try to figure out things that. Uh, that have a lot of parts and it, like with the great reset, you know, uh, which I'm kind of abandoning now because I think I've written everything I can on it except about the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do is I take on these behemoths and, uh, try to tackle them. Well, we speaking entirely for myself and half a dozen of folks that I know online, uh, we thank you for that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, thanks for appreciating it. I, I appreciate it's, uh, it. It's, it's, yes, it is. Sometimes it's hard to know who your audience is and what they appreciate. I think you probably have a good sense of that, but uh, we do appreciate it. And, and your work is not unappreciated or unnoticed. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, we have exceeded the budget I told you, and uh, if you're if this week is like last week, you <laughs> I want to let you do it, and if it isn't, then you need to convalesce. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like last week, if not more. Oh my, <laughs> yeah. For example, I'm interviewing well, Stephen Hicks later today on postmodernism, and really, and then yeah, then Mark Crispin Miller on Friday, I think, or Thursday. Uh, tomorrow uh, on COVID. So, yeah. Oh, I like Mark. I haven't talked to him yet. And I listened to, I played Hicks' book uh, a couple of years ago when it came out on something. Good book. Which like one? It. Postmodernism. Oh, I don't you know what the Hicks. title is, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good book. I have a few differences with it, but we'll try, we'll try to hash that out today. Cool. Well, I look forward to that. It's not really differences. I, I just try to explain something slightly differently than he does. Well, that's okay. That's uh, that 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 helps those of us who don't necessarily get one way figure it out from the other one. And, and I I value multiple explanations of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that has to do with why the postmodernists tend towards authoritarianism. And I, I tried to explain that. He has a different explanation than I do, but we're going to go over that today. Cool. Very good. Well, 
Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to let you run and get to it. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon, certainly online. Okay, great. Thanks for your time. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. As Michael said, the course isn't complete yet, but it should be out this summer. When it is complete, I'll let you know how to subscribe to Liberty Classroom. And to remind you, his previous course is already up. You can find that by surfing to culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. Please share this episode on your social media feeds. Also, rate and review it on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good Father's Day Sunday, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.